My special guest today is one of the most exciting actors this country has ever produced. He continues to enhance both stage and screen with his exceptional presence. He's also a celebrated artist and a legend of the highest calibre. Ladies and gents worldwide, raise the roof for the mighty Chris Ellison. Chris, welcome to the Bill podcast. Bloody hell, I've never heard an introduction like that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, you deserve it. I think we'll end, we'll end it there. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, all. <laughs> I'm so grateful for your time and... and it, it seems to me that you're busier than ever because in the time I've been producing this podcast, you've appeared in six feature films, two television series, you've starred in a national tour and you've got three more movies in the pipeline with Hereford Films. You're a busy man, sir. Yeah, one says that, but then the film business is very different from television because they're never really there until they're there. Do you know what I mean? Right. I mean, with TV, if you go for a TV series or something like that, then you know it's going to happen when it's going to happen but with films especially independent films which i've been doing it's always a bit up in the air i've been enjoying them like man, I, I really do enjoy doing them they're mostly of the same sort of noir they're gangster movies mostly there's a surprise but they're, <laughs> they're um, i like doing them because they're you're often working with people you know and I mean, I suppose I've been in this business nearly 50 years, so I know quite a few people. You know, you come across the same kind of people in the same kind of films, you know, or the same kind of programmes. I mean, I don't know many people in Downton Abbey, put it that way. <laughs> well, they'd be lucky to have you. Yeah, they would. <laughs> <laughs> I admire Jonathan Softcott enormously for, for making Hereford yeah. such a success because it's a notoriously difficult business, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I admire him too. He's a great guy. I've had a lot of good times with Jonathan and I'm looking forward to the next one. How did you first meet? I met him through a friend of mine, Keith Bishop, who's a who's a PR man in London. He's actually right-hand man to Mike Ashley. Aha. Wow. <laughs> Make what you will of that. But um, he's, a, he's, he's a great he's a great man. He knows everybody, does everything, you know. He's one of those. He's been a friend of mine for years. And he introduced me to Jonathan. And Jonathan said, oh, would you want to be in one of my movies? I said, yeah, I would. I think the first one I did for him was called Bonded by Blood. Yeah. And then that was only, I didn't do a lot in that because I was doing something else. I can't remember. I think I was touring a play at the same time, and it was a bit difficult. So the main, when I really started to work for Jonathan was when we did We Still Kill the Old Way, yeah. which, was, <laughs> which was the first of a trilogy. Which has been, which is two thirds finished, because we've got another one to do. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be soon. I mean, hopefully this year. Mm. I don't know because the months go by, and it's like what they're trying to do is fit everybody. It's very difficult to put, hold it all together when you've got actors who are not there. They're there one minute, they're not the next. You're trying to get everybody together, especially on a trilogy film like this. Yeah, where you've got the same cast. I mean, it's Ian Ogilvy. Me and uh, myself and Tony Denham and we're one of two others who are in it 
again, you know. It's, it's a who's who of British cinema, isn't it? You know, you've got Julian Glover popping in, Stephen Burkoff, Patrick yeah. Bergen, Lizzie Anthony, Vaz Blackwood, and, of yeah. course, Billy Murray. You know, so there's, yeah. there's something for Bill fans as well. And there's slick movies, you know. They've got great soundtracks. The cinematography is great. The story's mm. fun. It's good old-fashioned yeah. British... So if anyone listening to this hasn't tuned in yet, enjoy the Old Way series because they're, they're great fun. Yeah, they're good. They're good. But the next one I'm doing is called Reckoning Day. Ooh. And uh, I've got I've got the lead in that one, and that's an invasion movie. Ooh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it, it, no, it's, a, it's a, I play a gangster who's with his family in his house. He's made a lot of money and all that and everything. And I was very happy but until certain people come into the house unwittingly, and then... He gets his reckoning day. Ooh. So I'll leave the rest of it to your imagination. Yeah. It's, it's not the sound of music, I can assure <laughs> you. Am I right that your first movie was with Sean Connery called Ransom? His first big movie. Yeah, it was. Yeah. My God, that's a long time ago. That was back in the early 70s. Wow. So that was, we did that in Norway. Yeah. Yeah, he was amazing. Yeah. I mean, they, they were all, it was all an amazing thing to do for me because I was working with. I became great friends with Ian McShane on that, and he and we had really great people on it. But of course, it's just a movie to them. I mean, you know, Connery moved on, moved on, moved on. Because I mean, he just went from one to the other, as you know. Yeah. So, but it was great to work with him. He's a a very dry Scot, mm. and he has a very dry humour, which is very funny. And I always got on very well with him. I thought he was really nice, and he was great, great to me, very nice to everybody. But if a producer upset him or anything like that, God help him. And, uh, anyway, he could certainly speak speak for the crowd, that's for sure. Yeah. He's one of, obviously, cinema's greats. Who were the other icons, the film actors that you grew up watching? Or was there anyone you particularly admired or inspired? Well, he didn't inspire me. I mean, nobody... I don't think... You get inspired by scripts, not by... Other actors, really. Mm. I mean, I get inspired by footballers and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't really get inspired by actors because they're doing the same job as me. <laughs> uh, you know, but you do. I mean, I admire. There's a lot of actors I admire. I mean, I always loved Gene Hackman. He was one of my, oh, yeah. my all-time favourites. I mean, any film with Gene Hackman could be a poor film, but it would be enhanced by his presence, as, you, as they say. Absolutely. So, you know, it's worth watching if he was in it. Robert Mitchum. I always loved Robert Mitchum. He was so quiet. He was so lazy. He appeared <laughs> to be so lazy. I always remember he was being interviewed once and they asked him, what's the first thing you look for in a script? And he replied, days off. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, I I loved that. I liked his attitude. It was great. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, I was brought up with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster and all those, and and also with the British stars like Kenneth Moore, John Mills, and all that. They were all around when I was a kid, and they were the kind of they were in everything. I mean, Kenneth Moore was supposed the top British star at the time. Yeah, and I'm talking about the fifties, early sixties, huge star. I've always loved Burton. I mean, yeah. Burton's one of my probably of all the actors. I think Burton is probably the. I don't know. He's there. He's there. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that voice is just unbelievable. Like you, he's got that danger quality. I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't compare myself to Richard Burton. Well. <laughs> Please don't either. Don't anybody compare me to Richard Burton. I'm setting, you, setting yourself up to be hit by an exorcist missile. Um, no, I don't think I'll do that. But I did. I'm a great admirer of his, yeah. I mean, I loved all those, all those films like Sulu. It was one of my favourite films of all time. I mean, it still is. I can watch it. I know every bloody line. Yeah. I know every line of Michael Caine's and Stanley Baker and Nigel Green. All those great James Booth. I mean, my God, there were some amazing people in that film. And it wasn't a huge Hollywood blockbuster. It was a British-made film. And it was superb. Yeah. I mean, when you see it now, I mean, you think, my God, they made that in, I think it was 1962, I think, or four, something like that. It was a very long time ago. It was Michael Caine's first introduction. Usually, when you see the words introducing so-and-so come up on the screen, <laughs> you can guarantee you're never going to hear yeah. them again. <laughs> you would disappear without trace. Yeah. Uh, but not so in the case of Michael Caine. No. I thought that was one of Michael Caine's best, best performances. Absolutely. Because he was playing so against character and he, he was so good in it. Educating Rita's a favour of mine as well. He's. Uh... Yeah, I like Educating Rita. Well, I mean, I like all the Harry Palmer films as well. Oh, they were yeah. great. Films, it, Chris File and all those sort of things. Was it the the love of the cinema that, that got you into acting? Is that where, how you got the bug? No, not really. I was at art school. I was trained as an artist. I was at Wimbledon, then I was at Campbell. I never went to drama. I better be careful what I say here. <laughs> I never went. I never set yourself up for another exorcist missile here. But I, I never went. I never went to drama school. As I hear a chorus of voices shouting, "Yes, that's obvious." Oh no, but, no, um, no. But I mean, you know, I didn't. I I went to art school, and then I was working in theatre uh, weekends and stuff as stage management and stuff like that to earn money. And then I got offered a part, miraculously, because I was took an interest. And I said, and there was a little part um, in a play. And they said, oh, Chris, do you want to try for it? And I said, yeah. And they gave me the part. And then I kind of got the bug from there. And then I, I didn't really get the bug. I just kept doing it. Yeah. I got an agent very quickly because I was lucky. I mean, I was very lucky like that. But then it was in the days when... You could be lucky. Nowadays, it's very difficult to even get an equity card or anything. And they don't dish them out now. I mean, and it's such an overcrowded profession now. It wasn't then. I mean, I'm talking, as I say, 50 years ago. It was just different. And I just got, ca carried on from there. I carried on as my, with my painting as well. But I carried on as an actor. And then I got, I got into television very early, right at the end of the 60s. My first television job was, you won't believe this, there was a series called Emergency Ward 10. It was a very, very popular series. It was a bit like Holby City of its time. Uh, my first part was in the very final episode wow. of that series. Yeah, which was amazing. And I, I came in as a young, very young doctor who was taking out, they tried to get people who looked like, I don't know what it was, I always remember it because it was such a weird thing. And I, I actually went to the rap party wow. for emergency <laughs> wards. Oh, I, I love, love it. it. Oh, I thought, 
<laughs> and I, and I, I thought, how did I get here? I'm not even in it. <laughs> I've only done one episode, and that is it. But it was amazing. Yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. And that, and then I didn't. I did theatre after that. I did a couple of tours and went around. Did all the thing rep. I did that film with Sean Connery, and then I did the very third episode of The Sweeney that was ever made. Yeah. So that set me on the road to all these sort of crime series, which there were many of in those days and through the 80s and into the 90s, although I was busy on the bill. But there were lots and lots of TV series. There was all the Minders and the Dempsey and Makepeace and everything, you know, the Gentle Touch. And I remember filming the Gentle Touch. I always played a gangster, I have to tell you, in all of these. I was a gangster in all of them. And uh, they kept, kept casting me as these kind of, you know, really awful characters. And I remember playing, um, two of us were bank robbers, and we got cornered up an alley in South London next to a Mecca bingo hall. And I was having a fight with baseball bats with a stocking mask on. And I, I remember having, I wore a stocking mask a lot in those days. <laughs> and, uh, they got, and I remember having a fight with Derek Thompson, who then went into casualty, who I, I just saw him. I saw him the year before last because I did the Christmas special. I hadn't seen him for 40 years or something. That was unbelievable. We were having this fight. I fell against the doors, these double doors of this bingo hall. And the doors flew open and I went crashing into the, middle of a bingo session with all these women who all turned round as one to this man in a stocking mask with a holding a baseball bat and went Shh. <laughs> 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 well, that is a true story <laughs> oh that's brilliant so much, so much for the power of the bingo <laughs> yeah. yeah well another lovely early TV role I've dug out a a children's short you made called Blind Man's Bluff. Oh, good God. Yeah. That was for the Children's Film Foundation. That was one of the first films I ever did, yeah. Good yeah. God. It's a lovely performance. I, I played a blind man. It was a very strange film. It, I enjoyed it. I remember it very well. I remember seeing a still from it once, and I just... That was not too long ago. I don't know how I saw a still from it. Someone must have shown me it. And I think I had... The, the biggest flares of anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> the flared trousers were something I've seen. They were like a couple of sailing boats attached to my legs. <laughs> but I do remember it. Well, yeah. Um, Blind Man's Buff, yeah. I did another children's series, but that was later. That was in the 80s called Running Scared. That went on for quite a while. That was quite successful. Mm. That was on BBC, yeah. Uh, I played the villain in that. In 1984, as well as The Bill, you played eight different characters on TV. I remember there was a piece in one of the papers at that at that time, and it went, it's all over, Chris. <laughs> oh, Chris, he's all over, or something like that. <laughs> and somebody actually pointed that out yeah. and said... I can't get away from this bloody man. <laughs> Every time I switch the television on, he's there somewhere. I was in a lot of stuff. Yeah. I was. I did a lot of stuff like Widows and 
and I was in um, a thing called Walcott. That was it, Walcott. And that was a big series. That was the late Warren Clark was in it. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, Warren was playing the, the villain, the out-and-out villain, and I was playing the bent copper. So he <laughs> <laughs> um, wasn't even a nice copper. He was a bent copper. Horrible. I remember his name, Charlie Bonham. That was my name. Oh. I remember it. I don't know why I remember it. <laughs> Cheerful, because the director used to go, here he comes, cheerful Charlie Bonham. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was a miserable son. <laughs> Another copper you played that year was in the comedy Fresh Fields. You have a very funny scene in that. Good God, you've pulled up some stuff. It was lovely Anton Rogers. What a nice man he was. God, he was a nice fellow. He was really helpful. He was kind of not many actors when they're the lead in a series. They don't bother with guests. I mean, not saying they don't bother, but they don't have time for guests. They don't know. Everybody gets on and does what they do. You've got to know your lines. Don't bump into the furniture and bugger off. And that's basically what they want from you as a guest. Mm. But they... But he was really went out of his way to, and he knew I was not very experienced in comedy at that time. And he, he kind of gave me a lot of hints and bothered. He actually bothered to talk to me, which I thought was really nice. Oh, he was a real sweetheart. He was. You got a huge laugh because he's outside talking to a spider, and he says, "My wife has a problem," and you say, "I should think she has looking after you." And then when he goes back inside, you look around over your shoulders and look down at the spider and say, "What's your name, then?" <laughs> I don't remember. He probably helped me with that because he—that was the kind of man he was. He would—he would always try and get you. You know, I mean, I say always. I only worked with him once. Unfortunately, I'd love to have worked with him more. Funny enough, you remember people through your life and through your career, and you remember some people not quite so fondly. Mm. But I always remember Anton Rogers with great affection and, and, a, and an extremely nice man. And of course, one of those nine roles in 1984, initially for one episode, was Tommy Burnside, as he was then. Yeah. I actually met Pat O'Connell recently. Ah, oh, I love Pat. Yeah. How is she? She's very well. Um, she was such a lovely woman. I love Pat O'Connell. What a sense of humour she had. I could tell you a story she told me, but I couldn't because you wouldn't be able to put it on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> One of the funniest stories ever. <laughs> She's brilliant. She was great fun, Pat. I love Pat. Well, yeah. she, she recalls being sent a tape by your agent and watching it, and they all thinking, well, he'd be perfect. And then she recalls during the filming of the first episode, Michael Chapman coming up to her and saying, this guy's terrific. We've got to have him back. Oh, I bet he regretted it. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think so. I ended up having a blazing row with him. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> the Admiral. Yeah. The, the Admiral. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, who is that fellow? Oh, yeah, someone might have him. Well, use him. Yes, yes, get him back. Yes, he's all right. Yes, yes. As long as he doesn't talk out of turn, as long as he salutes me, I'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like Michael. I, I had a lot of respect for him. He was—he did run the whole show like a sort of destroyer, yeah. <laughs> going into action. <laughs> yeah. what, what appealed to you about 
Burnside? And obviously, initially, you, you were coming in for, for free guest parts. And, and Well, it was, I was, well, the funny was, I was offered rope originally. Oh, wow. Yeah, John Salthouse was already cast as Galloway, and I was offered roach. And I thought, I looked at it, and it wasn't for me. Do you know what I mean? Mm. He was a heavy drinking. Tony Scannell, who obviously ended up playing him, was brilliant. Oh, yeah. And he made him his own, you know, totally made him his own, which was, I mean, you know, one of the main characters on the show for years, and deservedly so. Mm. But I never thought it was the right character for me. And I always said, I said to my son, like, look, there's only one character I want to play in that series, and that's the detective inspector, the DI, but that's cast now. And then they offered me the, to go in as a guest, and that's when I went in as Tommy Burnside. And then they found out there was somebody in the Met called Tommy Burnside, <laughs> did you believe? <laughs> so they had to change his name. And so they changed it to Frank, which was when I came in for the whole thing. I mean... Let's face it, we don't go into these things. I mean, some actors probably go to the RSC and spend their lives there and, and do very quality work. I mean, I was never one of those actors. I was always an actor who was after a job, basically, to get money to mm. live. I suppose I was lucky in that period. I'd got married in 1979. I'd had children. Anyway, I had a son then. You know, I had a mortgage to pay. So you were looking for work all the time. But I mean, when the bill came along as a full-time option, I think it was 1988, I think I joined. Yeah. I mean, obviously you go, yeah, please, because it's regular money. I didn't go, oh, this is going to be my pinnacle of my career, or this is such a wonderful part. It was a wonderful part. I mean, Jeff McQueen, who wrote the original series, he wrote me in, and I always thought he wrote me in really well. And uh, unfortunately, Jeff died very young and mm. unexpectedly. I always half felt that Jeff had been an influence on me getting that part. I was also have to be thankful to John Salthouse because he would have played it, but he didn't want to because he didn't want to do the half hours. He decided not to carry on. So without him deciding not to carry on, I wouldn't have gone in. His reason of wanting that variety of work was the variety of work you had at that time. You know, in between your your guest appearances and coming in as a regular as Burnside, you made like 12 different series. Yeah, I never really counted them. I never counted what I was doing. I mean, I, you know, you just wait for the check. <laughs> 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 I didn't say, oh, there's another one. <laughs> I didn't have a sawn off shotgun with notches in it. <laughs> no, I mean, I've, honestly, to tell you the truth, I mean, I never thought about how much I was doing. I just thought, oh, thank God I'm working. I yeah. mean, that's all you do think. I mean, you know, when it dries up, which of course it has over the last few years, I mean, it's dried up for television. You don't actually miss it because you don't, you, you've been there and you've done that. But the fact is you do miss the work. Doing the films is great, but if they offered me a new series of something, which I probably wouldn't now because of my age, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not particularly castable now because of my age, because I'm older, because they don't cast older actors much in much. I mean, not like when I was in my 40s, 30s, 40s, I was flying because I could play, you know, all the time. And also you've got energy which is like, you, you know, your energy levels do drop a bit as you get older. I mean, I'm still, I'm, I'm doing pantos and things. I'm doing another one this year. And I do all the kind of things that keep actors going. I mean, that's what you do. I have to say that sometimes I think 
would I want to go back and do the bill again? Like twice, two shows a week, you know, filming two shows a week. It was exhausting. And, that, and I think I wouldn't want to do that now. I mean, I'd, I'd find that hard. I'm over 70 now. So it's like you think, shit, I can't do that. I tell you what, if there's a chair around, I'm the first one in it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind about giving your seat up for the poor old pregnant woman. <laughs> I thought, no, you can fucking stand up, darling. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be four stone lighter soon, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious. No. But the fact is, I mean, the thought of doing, I mean, I was offered tours, but they offer you like, a, you know, six months a year to do a tour. And I said, no, I can't do that. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be touring the country and, you know, doing a play. I like it for a short period. I did one year before last. I did a tour, but I only did 13 weeks, and that was all right. That was fine. And it ended up in Brighton, which was great. So I could cope with that. But I couldn't cope with 52 weeks of the year or no. 26 weeks of the year, you know, not, not just touring and or even filming. I mean, you know, when you think that, um, I mean, that's, that's one of the wonderful things about today is that films get made so quickly. Mm. You know, because the equipment's so brilliant now that you just, they, it's not three months on location, unless it's some huge Hollywood blockbuster, which I've never been in and I don't suppose I ever will be. But the fact is that a normal film, I mean, if you're making a normal kind of adventure film, a month, six weeks, that's about average now. Let's not beat about the bush. Tony said, oh, well, do you prefer theatre to filming or television? And I said, oh, I prefer television. And they said, why? I said, because I go home in the evening. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I said, I've always preferred it. It's just what you like. I've, never, I've always have actually preferred working in front of a camera than working in theatre, always. I mean, I, like, I enjoy working in theatre up to a point. What was your routine when you were filming at Barbie Row? Were you commuting from Brighton or would you stay over in London? Or... No, I had a flat when I was in Barbie Road. When we moved to Wimbledon, I did it from home because it was easy. Because you travel early in the morning, leave home at half past five, quarter to six, get in there for seven. Because you get called very early for those sort of things. Because you're always chasing the daylight. Everybody wants, you know, they want to get as much daylight hours as possible. That's why films always start so early in the morning. Because they don't want to lose the light. And being the DI in the build just means you are... Like the busiest character in the show, isn't it? I mean, the, the show was almost well, built not, around... Not necessarily, because we were very separate. Remember, the uniform... I hardly ever worked with uniform people. You know, that's why I never really worked with Eric. Mm. Hardly at all in the whole time I was there, because we had one or two scenes together where we crossed over. But normally, they were kind of... They wrote the episodes like there was a CID episode or a, or a uniformed episode. So there was a segregation. I mean, it wasn't a sort of deliberate, you know, we're not going to have them. It's just the way it was. A lot of the uniform stuff, they interacted because they always worked together, you know. And the CID people always worked together in reality, in, you know, in real life. What, what are your memories when you think back to the Barbie Road days? I mean, you know, I made friends for life there. Mark and John are still good friends of mine. I go back, it was all very happy because we were all young and we were all... Mm, silly, <laughs> um, and I can't, I can't tell you how silly it was in CID. <laughs> it used to camp, camp about all the time, and 
giggling and I mean, you know, it was all deadly serious, of course, when it comes to the show. But when we were, I mean, we were awful. I can't imagine some of the directors. I was like, oh, God, I can't stand another minute of this. But um, all the laughing, because we used to laugh all the time. I mean, we used to sit in cars on location, because we spent a lot of time on location. We were always laughing, and they could hear us, you see, because he was wired up. You were mic'd up. So always, I mean, oh, dear. I mean, I mean, those are the sort of things I remember. I mean, it was just fun, really. I mean, we had fun. We worked damned hard, I tell you. We really did. Yeah. We worked extremely hard, and you had to know, you had to be on top of your game. You had to know your lines, and you had to know... You know, but it was quite confusing sometimes because you could be involved with three, four episodes at the same time. Yeah. There was a possibility because he was shooting. I think it was two a week. We were actually shooting two scripts a week. But then he, on a Saturday, you get your next two, you know, or whatever. Or you go and see Nigel Wilson in the who was the coordinator, a famous Nigel, and you go and say, "Now, Nigel, am I in the next one? I want to go on holiday. And said, can I get can I get time off on me? He said, "I'll oh, leave it with me. I'll see what I can do." That was the way it was. Yeah. It was great. I mean, we it was fun. It was fun. You see, there were no st- real stars in the show. I mean, there weren't. I mean, there were some characters that were a bit more well-known than others, but I don't think there was ever a stars of the show. It was always, it was an ensemble piece. That's the way it was written. That's the way they wanted it. But you never felt pressure on yourself. I mean, I... I was very lucky because I always had good writers like Chung Wiltshire and people like that. They knew how to write for me because I used to put the one-liners in yes. and all that. And they were funny, you know. I mean, I always thought that was a huge mistake they made when we did the spin-off series called Burnside. I always thought it was a mistake there because they changed the format completely. And I, the one thing I always felt it lost was its humour. And I thought that was the great that was, to me, I know Burnside was a horrible character in a lot of ways, but he was quite funny. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was funny. He said funny things. And and that's what I love. The most enjoyable thing about it was that it's like, it's like all drama. It's what I never understand in some dramas. They, let, they go there and make it all so black mm. and serious. And you think, for Christ's sake, somebody laugh or do something because you... It's so boring if it's all drama, in in inverted commas. It it needs light. It needs one-liners. It needs something just to break the mood, break the atmosphere. That's what does it. Uh, That's what good writing is all about. It's like playing an instrument. If you play it all on one note, it's just boring. I have a few of my uh, favourite Burnside one-liners, if you don't mind me sharing them. No, I've probably forgotten them, I'm sure. Once <laughs> picking up the phone, you say Salvation Army, Sister Anna speaking. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't care whether you were in Rome playing tiddlywinks with the Pope. No, I don't remember that. <laughs> you couldn't break wind in a bean factory. No, I don't remember that. When when John Isles has a hunch once, you say to him, you see patterns in plain wallpaper, Michael. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's quite good. Who's he going to think grassed him up? Captain Kirk, which is a personal (laughs) favourite of mine. And uh, 
Where, when you're made up to acting DCI and everyone's making a big deal of this, you say anyone would think I was standing in for God. <laughs> Nigel Wilson's personal favourite, by the time I get a whisper into the scrubs. You'll admit to eating sugar. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> one of my favourites. Yeah. I also remember, if you don't watch out, son, Jesus won't be just your friend. He'll be your next door neighbour. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> Jesus won't won't just be your friend; be your next door neighbour. That was a good one. Yeah. They, I mean, there were there were some good ones. I mean, that's what it always needed. It needed those kind of things because that, that's what makes good viewing. People obviously think of Burnside as the hard man, and you know, right. and but putting the head down the loo and all that, you know, gold dust and great stuff. But yeah. for me, there's you give a phenomenal performance in an episode called Saturday Blues where, where Burnside's goddaughter dies in hospital from a, an overdose. You get her boyfriend in, but you are so still in the episode when you're processing what's happened. It's a phenomenal piece of acting. So I must watch that one day. <laughs> yeah, Saturday Blues, it's superb. Yes, I do remember the scene where Tony has to get me from attacking this guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did have some really good scripts. You don't get them very often. A lot of writing for television is quite... I see stuff now. I mean, there's masses of good stuff on telly because, I mean, there's so much now because it's all made for Netflix and and ITV and BBC pull out loads of dramas now. The thing I find really hard is to follow one of these series because there's so many of them. And when you're trying to find... They say, oh, I'm on episode... Season three, episode, <laughs> episode 17. And I think, well, good luck to you, mate. <laughs> um, I, I sort of gave up after episode three of season one or whatever. You know, but I mean, you know, they're just, it's just too much. Mm. You think, what, what are they making here? What are they, they turn this into a sort of, a, it's like producing cars. It just goes on and on and on. I know that's the way of it now, but. I, I can't follow. I can't follow a series for season after season. The only one I've ever done, all the way through, and I'm honest, I just couldn't leave it alone. Was Breaking Bad, oh, and I, yeah. I watched, and I watched it right from the word go, and I wa- and I watched the whole lot because I and I sit up all night watching it. Yeah, you know, Anita and I used to watch it a lot. So should we watch another one? Yeah, watch another one. Yeah, <laughs> I will watch another one. And it used to go on, but I've never really done that with anything else. I mean, there was. There's a lovely, uh, well, the only funny thing, uh, there's a lovely comedy one which has been on, which nobody except me seems to have heard of, which I've watched all of it, and it was called Shit's Creek. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's bloody brilliant. It's a Canadian series, and it was made up, it's about a Jewish, very wealthy Jewish family who suddenly fall on hard times, and they end up living in a motel. And it's just brilliant. It really is. It's one of the funniest things. And there's lots of it. I mean, I think it goes to about three or four seasons. I'm not sure. I did watch all that. And that's well worth a watch. I tried to tune into Killing Eve the other day. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. But it's because I probably, because I haven't watched it, haven't got into it. You know, people are into it and they do watch it. But there's so much of it. Have you watched Line of Duty? No. Because there's only like five or six a series. Yeah, you know, it's... I think I will watch that one. Yeah, I will watch that one. 
But now the football season starts, <laughs> I'll be getting BT, I'll be getting BT Sport back and sod everything else. I won't be watching anything. <laughs> the drama's gone out the window. I'll be watching the Europe, European Championships. I'll be watching football. Talk about the volume of TV. I mean, in 1993, the bill went to three times a week. You guys are making 156 episodes a year, and and. I believe it was oh, at that point you said, that's enough for me. Yeah, I, I went off. I, did, I think that's when I went and did that series Ellington. Yeah. Off the Yorkshire, yeah. So that was a different ball game altogether. I enjoyed that, actually, because it was so... It was, it was That was hard work, but it wasn't like the bill. But it, and then I did go back to the bill. Yes. And I went back to do some specials and stuff. But, I mean, that, you know, I'll always have... Fond memories of the bill, but it's a minute, it's a it's a lifetime ago now for me. Well, it's a lifetime ago for some people. For the, it's a lifetime ago. I mean, it's gone. You know, it's long gone. And I and I kind of, I I'm I'm sort of loath to talk about it because it sounds like I'm reliving it. I'm not. I don't relive those days. I don't. I don't. They don't really mean that much to me now because. It's gone. It's history. You know, it's a, it was a job. Mm. It was a job. Like, I'm a, you know, they always say I'm a jobbing actor. Well, you are because you go from your next job is the one you're interested in. And the one that's gone before is gone. And that's it. I mean, I love, I mean I'm, I'm glad that people still love the bill and they seem to talk about it. And people still come up to me and insult me and things. It's great. <laughs> but <laughs> no, I don't. they're always, always very nice, most people. Did it help or hinder your career? Burnside. Who knows? I don't know. I people probably say, "Oh, we don't want him. We've seen him. You know, we know what he does." And that's it. I mean, uh, that's the way it goes. And also, it's always with the passing of time. You know, roles are less and less for you as you get older. That's why I'm so enjoying doing the films. Yeah, because there's something I can do, and 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 I feel totally part of. And committed to, and I, and I, and that's I'm I'm enjoying that, but I mean I've got other things in my life. I mean I've got exhibitions coming up. I've got an exhibition coming up in London oh, in uh, September, painting exhibition. I'm working, you know, I'm working quite hard with all that. So it's kind of that takes over my life quite a lot now. What is your routine as a painter? Do you paint in silence? Do you put music on? No, sometimes I put music on. I uh, put a bit of blues or something, you know, I like that. I, sometimes I paint in silence. I usually paint with my dog sitting on the chair next to me. Oh. And, yeah, but she's probably got her teeth bared because she doesn't want me to move her. <laughs> and uh, and she, uh, she growls at me from time to time just to let me know she's there. <laughs> Bloody Jack Russell. I paint him in the garage. It's a huge garage. But I've got my section of it, which is my studio by the window, and that's where I paint. I've been in there this morning just prepping a canvas. Um, I've got to do certain things. I've got some subject I have to do for another exhibition, which it's actually for a West End club. I'm gearing up to paint for them, in a way. Just a few paintings in there. And then this other exhibition, and then there's one, hopefully, at... A restaurant in South Kent, um, San Lorenzo's, which is a famous restaurant. So they've, they're opening a gallery. So they've said they'd like to put my stuff in there, which I hopefully will happen. Uh, so it's all 
things like that. It takes up most of my time now of painting. I have to say, my mind is more on my painting than on doing Emmerdale, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I interviewed Tom Kotcher, who's... Oh, yeah, well, Tom... Tom lives around the corner from me. Yeah, and uh, and uh, he paints. Yeah, Tom That's paints. Right. He does really well, and he's and he he's quite prolific. He paints more. He bloody art works harder at it than I do in a way. But, yeah, he's great. He's a nice man, Tom. He's very nice. He said the the painting helps him kind of stay in the artistic zone rather than being an actor waiting for the phone to ring. If he's uh, being creative himself, yeah. he's he's all, always in the zone, as it were. So if he gets a whole B or any spenders yeah. and he's ready, and I agree with I agree I agree with that. I mean I well I mean I think we're all if you're an artist, a heart artist or artist or whatever you like to say, if you have that kind of that's how you express yourself. You have to express yourself somehow. I mean, I can't play the guitar. I wish I could. Then I'd be a blues guitarist or something. But I paint and I act occasionally now. And uh, that's good. That's good. That's that's the way it should be. We all go through this life doing things that, you know, our time is limited. And we all have to try and produce what we can within the time. I mean, if you haven't got anything to do, I think that must be awful. I mean, if if you've got nothing to do, to wake up every day and think, well, I've got nothing to do. I don't know what I'd do. Mm. I'd probably jump off a cliff. I, I don't think I'd be able to live like that. I mean, it's when people say, are you retired? I said, no, <laughs> no, I'm not retired. The fact that you don't see me every night on television doesn't mean I'm retired or dead <laughs> yet. <laughs> So I always say that. I don't know. <laughs> they they talk, talk about it. So you live that kind of life where you've now retired and now I'm going to go down every morning and get the paper and go home and read it and, and that's it. Hmm. Well, I'm not. No. no. But it's not, it's not my life at all. Never has been. Is there a piece you've painted that you're the most proud of? Well, I sold one for quite a lot of money not a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> that's my favourite piece. <laughs> I don't have favourite pieces. I like some subjects I like. I mean, I do a lot of the same subjects some of the time. Um, I go through phases. It's not easy to talk about painting. It's a funny thing. I, it's a, it's a very different world, and I and I something I find gives me release. It gives me purpose and motive and everything else. So that's why I like doing it. I, I it's hard though. It's not easy. I mean, I don't. People say, well, do you enjoy it? I said, well, sometimes I enjoy it. Sometimes I absolutely hate it because I'm I'm, having, I'm struggling to do it. That's why it's easier to be an actor. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've got somebody else writing the words for you for a start, somebody else directing you, somebody else finding the locations, somebody else catering. Um, if you're a painter, it's just down to you, mate. And there's nobody else. Yeah. It's quite a lonely life. I mean, it's been like a writer, really. I mean, a writer's also a lonely existence. They 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 write. You write on your own. You don't have somebody there helping you. Because uh, I've read on the Hereford, you know, film site. You know, you're an executive producer, and you're you're trying to develop some TV. That, that means nothing. All oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that means fuck all. Mate. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Jonathan. He's a good, he's a good, he's a good friend. Yeah. He, put, he put me up for prime minister as he could. 
mind you, anybody could do that job now. <laughs> <laughs> it, is there a um, is there a dream project that like you'd love? Like if you could, if you could have another series that you know you were in control of, what would the subject matter be? And oh, it would be definitely it would be a crime series. It would definitely be. I think something like The Sopranos, an English version, an English version of The Sopranos, and I play Tony Soprano. Love there it. you are. That would be my dream. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think the listeners to this podcast will be well behind The Sopranos of Chris Ellison. UK version of The Sopranos. Yeah, I think that would be excellent. And I'd, I'd have to think about the writer. I'm sure there are lots of really good writers who could do it, but uh, it'd be fabulous. And I'd like to produce it as well. That would yeah. be great. That, that I would like to be executive producer on. And, and I mean, I mustn't belittle, but the, um, I only joked about what Jonathan oh, has put me down as well. But I mean, I mean, obviously, it's very nice of him to put me down, but I haven't actually had to do anything. It sounds a lot more important than it actually is. But that's quite a nice question, actually, the dream thing. That would be it, I think. Yeah, do the, yeah. the English version of The Sopranos, but not, not obviously called something completely different. And uh, But along those lines, yeah, that would be great. Watch this space. Let's see what happens. Watch uh, this space, yes, yeah. <laughs> but don't watch it for too long. <laughs> Get a life. <laughs> well, I, I am. Yeah, go on. I am so grateful to you for doing this. I really am. And, no, and, no, and as, no, it's a pleasure. pleasure. As will all the fans. I mean, um, something we like to ask each interview to do is to nominate a charity that the listeners can support if they want to donate a couple of quid to. Is, is there anything that oh, springs right, right. to mind? Probably go for the homeless charity um, shelter or whatever. And also, of course, the Actors Benevolent Society. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, quite right. I <laughs> made that in my name, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was only joking about the Actors Benevolent Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, no, probably for the homeless, yeah. Just to finish, this this is going to be a surprise Christmas Day special, which is going to have the fans, oh, yeah. it's going to make their Christmas. So... What is your final right. message for for Christmas Day to fans of the Bill, the fans of Frank Burnside, the fans of Chris Ellison? What what is your Christmas Day message to fans listening to this? Uh, my Christmas Day message is leave those bloody turkeys alone because I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> there you go, <laughs> and that's true. As is my wife, she'll be having a nut roast today. So no, no, I won't be having a nut roast. I'll be <laughs> probably having a, something else, but we will not be eating turkey. So that's it. Leave those poor bloody turkeys alone. Yeah. <laughs> what a finale. Chris Ellison, legend. Thank you so much. All right, mate. <laughs> My pleasure. Cheers, mate. Well, how about that for a finale to series three of the bill podcast my huge thanks to the legendary chris ellison for very kindly giving me the great honor and pleasure of interviewing him my equal huge thanks to fellow legend the mighty john isles for kindly setting up that interview and you'll be hearing from john shortly to read out our closing credits 
Since John recorded those credits, we've had a new co-producer, an inspector patron of the podcast. Join the ranks, so my huge thanks to James Dane. I hope I'm saying that right, James. And I'd like to quickly take this opportunity to say a personal thank you to everyone who has supported the Bill Podcast Patreon channel. We're currently, as I record this, at 40% of my target, which is just incredible. And I am so grateful to everyone. Huge thanks to Alan Hunting, Alana Diwa, Alex Mockler, Andrew Brockington, Benjamin Hughes, Chris Horner, Daniel Christopher, Edward Kellett, Greg Scrace, Ian Daly, James Ladane, Joseph Beaver, Julie Benson, Justin Pitt, Karen Carpenter, Luke Hegarty, Matthew Bruff, Patrick Stratford, Paul Dunn, Paul Wilkins, Richard Sowerby, Robert Jennings, Sarah Watts, Sarah Went, Sonia Burton, Steve Martin, Stuart and Jen Morris, Tim Gibbs, and Tom Sherrington. 30 Legends, my huge thanks to all of you. And I'm very grateful to my wife Tess for all her support and our little cat Rocco. And I'm really grateful to all the legends who have very kindly let me interview them this year. I mean, more than I've ever attempted in one year. There's a lot of exciting things to come in 2020, kicking off with Alan Westaway and Hugh Higginson, Louise Harrison, Peter Dean, and then there's the Bill Reunion 5, and my huge thanks again to Stuart and Jen Morris for supporting the podcast, for becoming patrons of the podcast, and they do an incredible job. There's lots to enjoy from Misty Moon, so stay tuned. I'll see you all in 2020. Bye for now. This is John Isles, and you've been listening to The Bill Podcast, with special thanks to Chris Ellison. Produced and presented by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Paul Dunn and Alex Mockler. Executive produced by Joseph Beaver, Daniel Christopher, Luke Hegarty, Benjamin Hughes, Robert Jennings, Edward Kellett, Stuart and Jen Morris, Justin Pitt, Tom Sherrington, Patrick Stratford and Sarah Went. Brought to you in association with Misty Moon Events. May I take this chance to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and I wish you a happy and prosperous New Year.